Man of Steel. Answers. Insight. Commentary. Episode 50. Endgame. I don't know how to lose. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe, sports, football, and characterization, Lex Luthor's Endgame, and How to Lose. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. Happy New Year! It's great to be behind the mic again. Life's been taking me away from the show, but I just wanted to throw something together before the big game because I was inspired by it. Careful attention has been spent to make these worlds feel rich and alive with real-world lived-in details. We've touched on food and drink in the past. Today, let's take a look at leisure before we look at losing. Let's focus on football before we foment on failure. Sports are a big part of culture. Roughly two-thirds of Americans report themselves as sports fans, and the top sport continues to be football, with about half of Americans professing to be football fans. Links in the show notes. So naturally, any rich reflection of reality would weave that in, and that's exactly what we see throughout the DC's worldbuilding so far. In Man of Steel, Pete picks on Clark regarding the game. Clark is wearing a Jayhawks shirt when he loses his father, and Clark catches a college game before Zod's ultimatum. He recalls bullies and varsity jackets. His dream version of Kansas has him in a Royals shirt. The Smallville Spartans pepper downtown, and Lombard is a sports writer trying to use courtside tickets as a pickup. In Batman v Superman, we have the cops watching the college game. Lex sinks an effortless three-pointer. Bruce acts as an undercover cornerman in an underground fight. Clark is put on sports to cover football. Jay Oliva is a sports writer with a GCU jersey hanging from his cubicle. Superman saves a flood victim in a letter jacket. The inmates are playing basketball when Santos is slain. And at a Gotham police station, Clark comes across a cartoon with a Gothamville slugger and the caption, Batter Up. Relaying their relationship to the bat. In Suicide Squad, we get Flag's golf handicap, Harley's signature baseball bat, Floyd's heavy bag, and athletic wear all around, and I'm sure I've missed a few. In Justice League, we already know that Vic Stone, Cyborg, is going to be seen in his GCU jacket. Sports are, in general, just added texture to this world, but they can also provide a little bit of insight into Clark's character. In Super Bowl season, let's pull on this thread for Superman. Starting with Man of Steel, in the sensory overload scene, there's that line, his parents won't even let him play with other kids. Assuming that's accurate, that would include sports because that wouldn't be safe. Episode 30 for more on that. For now, just understand that that's the default state of sports for Clark. Something that he can observe, see from afar, but not personally participate participate in, at least initially. So let's get right into the bus scene where Pete pesters Clark saying, What do you think? Did you see the game? Leave him alone, Pete. Oh, what, he was his girlfriend? 
I want to hear what he has to say. The implication is that it's likely that Clark has seen the game and would have something interesting to say about it. If Clark was just likely to say, no, I didn't see it, that's not something that Pete would want to hear or care about hearing. That suggests that Clark is known to watch games, known to have something worth saying, or something worth making a point of provocation. Like poking fun at Clark's favorite team, taking a loss, or looking to Clark to have some hot take on the game. I suppose it's possible that Pete is just poking fun at Clark not watching the game, but that's really weak. I should note that the novelization has Clark claim that he doesn't follow it, but it's not clear if that's the truth or because he just doesn't want to talk to Pete. I prefer the interpretation that Clark's an average American who likes and watches football and has his own opinions, which could be interesting, or his own loyalties, which Pete might poke at. I think that gets reinforced as we walk through the thread of sports in Clark's life, such as the next scene where Clark is getting bullied by Varsity at Sullivan's. There's nine kids, and Pete's the only other boy besides Clark not in a Letterman jacket. Unless Pete's just there totally at random, it suggests that Pete follows the football crowd and maintains an interest in football. Clark getting bullied by the football crowd means that he's outside of it, but it makes it more likely that he had something interesting to say back on the bus. Otherwise, why would Pete bother? He's already a part of the football crowd and can talk to them. So let's take a second to take stock. It would be really easy to imagine a narrative where Clark hates sports and football, right? As a kid, he can't even play with others. Sports represent rejection. So sour grapes, he never liked sports anyways. As a teen, he's harassed by that flame-headed football groupie Pete when he just wants to be left alone. And then to make things worse, he's literally assaulted, thrown to the ground, surrounded and screamed at by Smallville High royalty. Five football varsity players ganging up on one lone Plato reader. In more stereotypical stories, Clark now hates sports. He hates football, he hates jocks, and he retreats into being a bookish person who just rejects what rejected him. That's the simple story, right? But that's not Superman, that's not Man of Steel, and that's not this universe. Instead of a shallow or binary bitterness and wholesale rejection, the theme continues to be the nuance summed up in that one word, maybe. Not the binary absolutes of no never or yes always, but the principled spectrum and the shades of gray embodied in maybe. Again and again, Man of Steel challenges the audience with questions and dilemmas of these kinds. How do you perpetuate a dying species? How do you keep a secret? When do you publish the truth? When might you take a life? When do you trust? And here we have another one, perhaps less important but just as illustrative, do you like sports? And man, I badly want to go on a tangent about Zod's extreme absolutism versus Jor-El's ambiguity, but this episode is already a Frankenstein of so many subtopics, I just can't spare the derail. There's just so much intentionally baked into these films. What I, I loved about the movie is that even if you never read the comic books or if you didn't know anything about these characters, the movie is a really interesting kind of dissection of some pretty substantive themes about power and ambition and, and morality and corruptibility. And it's about all these wonderful things in the context of this exciting superhero movie. Suffice to say, this universe allows people to hold multiple propositions and principles in tension simultaneously, with all the complexity and ambiguity that that brings, rather than take unequivocal positions. Let's get back on track. The point is, in the shallow story, we'd say a few negative stimuli is all it takes to shut down sports for Superman. But is that what we see? Sports come up for Clark three more times in Man of Steel, and each time they reinforce the idea that Clark didn't let a few 
bad experiences take away something that he loves or enjoys. The three additional times are subtle, but also significant if you work them through. In the tragic tornado scene, Clark is wearing a University of Kansas Jayhawks shirt. After Clark's homecoming and before Zod's ultimatum interrupts, Clark is watching a KU game. And finally, inside the dream machine during Zod's interrogation, Clark's wearing a Kansas City Royals shirt. All of these imply that Clark has a continual, abiding appreciation for sports. I'm not qualified to talk deeply about the significance of wearing branded clothing, but I don't think it's a stretch to say it's generally an indication of appreciation or affiliation. Whether you're wearing pop culture tees or sports jerseys, even if there isn't an explicit or intended statement, there is at a minimum tolerance, right? So Clark doesn't let sports or football stand for rejection, isolation, or persecution. Instead, he's using it to belong and associate with other fans and other locals to be part of their love and fandom, to be a part of his community by supporting Kansas and proudly declaring it's where he's from. Like his heraldic shield and cape, it's a badge, a symbol, or statement, a signifier to society. One could argue it's all a disguise. It's insincere and Clark is just trying to fit in. That's possible, but let's first consider the dream machine. We've discussed it in the past, but one theory is that sequence is a combination of Zod's and Clark's thoughts and imaginations, and that's because neither would have the time, ability, or desire to manually construct the illusion. And the vision contains components that are exclusive to each other. Zod wouldn't know about the farm, and Clark wouldn't know about the world engine, so the amalgamation is a combination of both their imaginations. So in this context, the idyllic farmstead is Clark's mental ideal, and his clothing is his own self-perception of himself. He puts himself in a royal shirt subconsciously and unbidden. That's his own instinct. If Clark could keep the farm hidden from Zod, he would, just as Zod might have tried keeping the world engine or the Sea of Skulls out of the simulation if he could. Okay, but you could still argue that his subconscious is defaulting to disguise, not delight. It's not that Clark likes the royals, it's just that he's been so conditioned to hide as a human that the shirt is just part of that reflex. Well, we have Clark watching the game. He's come home after a major milestone of meeting Jor-El, of being given his history, his other name, his purpose, and the power of light. Clark comes home to celebrate, to be home, to be himself after ages of aliases and endless wanderings. In the privacy of the home that he grew up in, he is at his safest and truest self so far, without the need for guile, pretense, or disguise. If Clark doesn't like sports, if they were a reminder of being bullied, being abnormal, being alone, then there is absolutely no one compelling him to watch a football game. Clark watches the football game because he likes watching football, just like Clark drinks beer because he likes beer. And this means that Clark isn't just some aesthetic monk without wishes, wants, desires, tastes, or preferences, all of which carry into BVS when Perry puts Clark on sports. It's true, Perry calls Clark a nerd and puts him on a fundraiser puff piece, but Perry also puts Clark on sports because nerds and sports aren't mutually exclusive, as observed by the following sketch. Settle in, this is going to be a good one. Ugh, sports. I will never understand why the brainless masses get so worked up over this pointless tribalism. Me though? Uh, I enjoy comic books, movies, sprawling space operas, you know, intellectual pursuits. Because I'm just too unique to understand the common folk. Common folk? Ha! <laughs> you are the common folk. Nerd is mainstream. Your mom can name more Avengers than she can Yankees. The truly subversive position is to defend sports. 
no, no, maybe two years ago. But now the backlash to the backlash to sports has lashed back to a backlash to a backlash to a backlash to sports. No, I'm, I'm the, the underdog. underdog. You think your little thing is so cool, but it's not. And only I'm brave enough to call it out. Newsflash, it doesn't have anything to do with the real world. You're watching a bunch of millionaires in a fake conflict orchestrated by other millionaires. What? That's the stupidest way you could describe it. It's about the stories and the human struggle. People pushing themselves to do incredible things. You call that incredible? I call it dumb. That's because you don't understand it! You know, if you took the time to really learn about the intricacies of this stuff, maybe you'd appreciate it. Instead, you hover at the outskirts, criticizing the surface. Well, maybe if you didn't use your knowledge as a way to belittle me, I might feel more encouraged to try your thing out. I guess. I don't mean to be exclusionary. I'm just truly passionate about it. It's an easy way for me to relax and escape my life for a little while. To make me feel like I'm a part of something bigger. And sure, maybe I get caught up in the insignificant details, but it feels good to care about something. Ha! That's the dumbest thing I ever heard! You're an idiot! No, you're an idiot! Touchdown! <laughs> Perry specifically assigns Clark football and giving Perry the benefit of the doubt as a good and competent EIC, you don't put someone on sports if they have no knowledge of and no affinity for sports. Your readers are expecting someone competent to write the piece, someone who follows sports, who has a strong knowledge of the game, the team, the players, and the politics. They want to read something written by someone with passion for the material. Readers are turned off by a writer who looks down on them with disdain, and Perry has to know these things about Clark. He wouldn't put Clark on this story without those fundamentals, the ability and the interest to follow through. If this interpretation is right, Clark's been a lifelong fan of sports. He can write on the level of a sports writer without issue because he's kept up, he's informed, and Perry knows it, which gives us some interesting insights into Clark during Batman v Superman. If we've established that Clark likes and follows sports, then in his downtime when he's free and relaxing and on his own, he'd rather be sipping beer and watching football because he likes it, because he enjoys it, then what does it take for Clark to not be doing those things? In other words, from Perry's perspective, he's giving Clark a choice story to cover. On any other day, Clark would love to do a story on football, to chase after one of his interests and tell a story about one of his pastimes. However, throughout the film, Clark keeps pushing back on this assignment because there are other things that are more important, things that take priority over his pastime, his leisure, his fandom. If he's like most fans, he probably likes to check the scores, catch highlight reels, watch a game or two when he can, and we see none of that in the film. So what does it take to tear him away from that? Instead, we see a man glued to the news and investigation. Clark sees Kahina and Keefe on the news. He researches the bat online and by hitting the pavement. He's watching the talking heads comment on Superman at home in his spare time. It adds an extra layer of gravity onto Clark's actions when you understand what he's giving up, what he'd rather be doing when you recognize him as a lifelong sports fan. The priority and the sacrifice he puts into being being Superman and investigating Batman to help people. And it could take on even more meaning if you consider Clark's capabilities. For the vast majority of sports fans, they're watching in awe and amazement at something that they can't do at the same level. And we're excited by the exceptional, the extreme displays and abilities beyond our own. What devoted fan hasn't allowed themselves to get caught up imagining that they're on that field? The players becoming avatars for their fleeting flights of fantasy. When the team scores, the fan scores. And when the team executes and celebrates a phenomenal play, 
the fan feels a part of it, and they feel like they suddenly had that strength, speed, and agility. Yet for Clark, he could watch sports knowing that if he could participate, if he did play, he would absolutely dominate. All that fame, the glory, the money, the fans, the love, the camaraderie could be his almost effortlessly. There is no sports fan that hasn't momentarily imagined swapping places with a sports star, but only ever as a fantasy. For Clark, that temptation, that possibility, that alternative avenue to his life was always there, right within his grasp. He could become beloved and accepted practically overnight, become a sports god if he just gave his gifts over to sports. It's a fun and enticing fantasy. In Superman Earth 1 Volume 1, five whole pages are spent on the power fantasy of Clark utterly dominating professional football tryouts, going from shrimp to star in the coach's eyes almost instantly. Here's another one of the many examples of that idea from the Ruby Spears series. Okay, Kent, your turn to take the snap. Let's see how far you can throw the ball. Okay, Phil, you run out as far as you can. Ready, set, hut, hut, hut. Was that all right? Not bad. Not bad. Let's see what else you can do. never seen anything like it. You're sure to be all state. Well, I don't know. Kent, you're on the team. First string quarterback. You're the best player I've ever seen. Yet in Man of Steel, it speaks to Clark's character and how the Kents raised him that he isn't seduced by this seemingly easy out. Clark was raised to prioritize the safety of others, the safety of his secret, to help others, and to expect a greater calling or purpose, even if it would take a lifetime to learn it. I also suspect that when this Clark entertained those fantasies, that he had been raised to really think through the realistic risks and consequences. What happens when they do drug testing, or he has to submit to examination. What happens when his every play is scrutinized in slow motion and high resolution replay and the science doesn't add up? This Clark would think twice before thinking that he could keep his secret playing pro sports so easily. Still, if he really wanted to, he probably could manage to pull it off if he was careful. But again, nuance and principles. It's not that football was bad, but it wasn't his purpose. I mean, every time I get the football, I can make a touchdown. <laughs> That's for sure. Every time. And there's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. I don't know whose reason, whatever the reason is, you know. But I do know one thing. It's not to score touchdowns. The fact that Clark can keep following football, keep loving the game, keep appreciating the teams, the plays, and the fans is a reflection of how he loves humanity as a human being. I don't think Clark watches football smirking at how their efforts would compare to his, and I don't think Clark watches football like a parent watching a peewee game simply out of adoration for a specific child. I think he legitimately loves to see the courage, the effort, teamwork, drive, passion, success, and failure on the field. The fact that Clark loves to watch 
watch humans play sports shows that he doesn't think of himself as above everyone and sincerely appreciates the merits on display. It means that he takes inspiration from us rather than needing someone perfect or better than himself to be inspired. And the fact that none of this is calculated or intentional effort on his part, but simply who he is, shows just how humble, down-to-earth, and human Clark is, despite his alien origins. And that's a thread worth preserving and developing, because it's a part of the Superman mythos and a potential point of character building in this universe. We're going to skip the mythos part because there is just so much of it. You could do an entire series just about Superman and football, believe me. But looking forwards, as the quarterback of a major metropolitan college football team, you know that football is a big part of Vic Stone's life before he became Cyborg. And depending on the story, you could imagine Superman and Cyborg bonding, talking football. It's not necessarily the first friendship you'd think of, but they have other things in common. They both have scientist fathers, they both have alien artifacts bonded to their bodies. And I love character interactions like that, which arise naturally out of the story. For example, with Keystone in Kansas, some of the most endearing character moments in the comics have been when Wally and Clark shared that common commute as two of the League capable of doing so under their own power. Little shared points of connection that organically build the chemistry and the characterization of the team. So one of the reasons that sports and football are sewn throughout the story is because Zack Snyder is such a fan. Last year was the 50th anniversary of the Super Bowl and the 50th anniversary of the Doritos brand and the 10th and final Crash the Super Bowl contest and ad campaign, which collaborated with Snyder. In an AOL interview related to the campaign, Snyder was asked, are you a big sports fan? And he answered, quote, I'm a pretty big sports fan. My son plays football at UCLA and I'm a diehard Green Bay Packers fan. So for me, pretty much every Sunday includes football. Football is my favorite thing to watch, end quote. Last year's Super Bowl was replete with Superman references given Cam Newton's shirt rip celebration and Superman associations, the Turkish Airlines Super Bowl ads, and more. As much as I want to wax on about the value of sports and romanticize it, I don't think I could ever say it better than this classic three-minute NFL Films track, so please enjoy while I take a break. Professional football in America is a special game, a unique game. Played nowhere else on earth. It is a rare game. The men who play it make it so. Hey, baby, let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. That's some fun. Coming now, buddy. We on our horse all day long. Let's just kick that ball all day long. Pick it up. Don't stop. Pick it up. Let's go. Get out to the ball. Get to somebody. Regulators, mount up. We're coming. Pro football is a mirror of early America. Reflecting toughness, courage, and self-denial. There he is! Whoa! Whoa! Good job! Good job! That's what I make a play out there, buddy. Nice job. Over Pirate 2. Ready? 45 blast! Yeah, 23! 45 blast! Keep on playing at this level now, huh? Keep it up, baby. Keep it up. We're gonna be here all day, baby! Hang in there, little buddy. They're coming at you. you better smile. Is this fun or what? The game is wide open, not confined. X's and O's on a blackboard are translated into imagination on the field. It can be one man rising above the obscurity of the grim, no-glory duty of special teams. 
It is a lineman clawing through the carnage at the scrimmage line and devouring the quarterback. Brown right, Fox two run on seven. The game is perpetual motion. A swirl of flying bodies in constant collision. A two and a half hour carnival of color, sound, and action. I got a little something for you. There's glory in the legends of this hard muscle life, and there's poetry in each season made of sweat and strife. But now's the time to work and strain at a sport that tests the spirit and challenges the brain. Come on, come on, come on, let's go. Yeah, I'd like to have 75 degrees and sunny all the time too, but that's not football. Do you fear the force of the wind, the slash of the rain? We're gonna play a suit, light and rain! Go face them and fight them. Be savage again. This football team is coming into our place. We're standing in our way. This is a game of the heart. Focus and finish. A time for achievement. A time for purpose. A time for glory. I love how NFL films bring the drama and the emotion of the game even to non-fans through cinematic tools. And that's sort of what I want to do for the football game in Batman v Superman for non-fans, but far less effectively, I'm sure. For football fans who already know the rules, understand the game, and get the controversy, my apologies. But this is for fans of the film who maybe don't follow football and don't get what all the fuss was about. So just as a refresher, here's that scene. 58 to nothing. Metropolis again blowing out Gotham City. And really only the diehards are left no, in the stand. Tom, it's been great working with you. I want to thank our producer and director. No, wait a second. I don't even Next want my... Just take They're a lining up as if Clarkson's going to throw it deep here. Don't tell me, Dave. I'm going to the end zone. This is a Zeke Baker is open. Baker with a touchdown catch. I can't believe I just lost. Never want to... And now a fight breaks out. Gotham City, you know how they are about their football team. Things could get ugly in the city tonight. So for context, Metropolis State is completely dominating Gotham City. With less than a minute of play to go, Gotham would have to make at least seven unanswered touchdowns with seven two-point conversions just to come back. An impossible feat. I know some non-fans reasonably ask why a game with four 15-minute quarters ends up taking three to four hours to watch, but let's leave that aside for now. The point is, there's not enough time for Gotham to make a comeback. The fans know this, which is why the the commentator says only the diehards are left in the stands. Everyone else has left knowing that Gotham's loss is a foregone conclusion. Note that the fact that these officers are still watching the game implies that they may be among the diehards, even ignoring dispatch to agonize over the last few seconds of this game. The commentator starts the credits and the wrap-up as the game is ending, but then expresses surprise as it appears that Metropolis is going to continue to play. And that's because that's contrary 
into modern custom. The prevailing unwritten rule is this. The dominating team should simply run out the clock. They do this by the quarterback kneel, which is also called taking a knee, like the cop says, or the genuflect offense or victory formation. In normal play, the defense tries to tackle whomever has the ball to end the play. The play ends when the ball holder's forward movement stops and when any part of their body other than their feet or hands touches the ground. Normally, the defense is trying to force this on the offense by tackling. But when the game is winding down, the offense will voluntarily stop the play to run out the clock, with a lower risk of turnovers, lower effort on the players, and allegedly lower risk of injury. When the QB gets the ball, they put their knee to the ground to end the play, signaling to the defense that there's no need to push through and try to tackle him or his receivers. Occasionally, there's controversy about this practice. So how did Tampa Bay's rush of the Giants quarterback violate the unwritten rules of the game? Well, football teams, to run out the clock when they have a lead, do something called taking a knee, the ball is snapped to the quarterback, and he kneels down, and then the seconds run off the clock. Usually, the defense acquiesces to this, but Tampa Bay did not. They ran in, tried to strip the ball from Eli Manning, and this got the Giants coach Tom Coughlin very hot under the collar. He was yelling at Greg Schiano, the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Schiano said, hey, it's not against the rules. I'm trying to play as hard as I can. Is that right? Is it not against the rules? Not only is it not against the rules, Greg Schiano was actually backed up by a lot of NFL veterans. The former legendary coach of the New York Giants, Bill Parcells, even said, I think Tampa Bay was playing hard and that's fine. Other coaches, other commentators said, I've never seen it done, but many of them said it's a fine message to be sending your team and it probably won't lead to injury. Wouldn't that be the issue or one of the issues? You're not supposed to beat up on other people's quarterbacks, right? Except under certain circumstances. Right. And this wasn't some sort of vicious assault. They just treated it as if it were a regular play. And you know, the whole reason that this even exists, this taking a knee, is because of something that happened to the Giants, something that's called the miracle in the Meadowlands, where the Giants were trying to salt away a lead in the 1970s against the Philadelphia Eagles. And instead of taking a knee, they muffed the handoff. Because back then, taking a knee, that was seen as poor sportsmanship. Soon after this muff handoff that resulted in a Philadelphia touchdown, teams all began taking the knee. So there was this shifting definition of sportsmanship. And I think if you look at the history, that's more evidence that's on Tampa Bay's side that it wasn't always thus in the NFL. To be clear, the situations aren't exactly the same. In BVS, Gotham is mad at Metropolis for not taking a knee and continuing to play hard. But in the controversy between the Giants and the Bucks, the Giants were mad at Tampa Bay for playing hard even though the Giants took a knee. However, what I find interesting is how, even in a universe of established rules for a game, you can have very different, very emotional, external interpretations of sportsmanship that are totally at odds, or even change over time. As mentioned in the clip, traditionally, teams would just play continually until the clock ran out. We won't get into the miracle of the Meadowlands, but you owe it to yourself to check that out. In that fateful game, that kind of continuous play led to a humiliating turnover which lost them the game in the very last seconds, even as the credits were rolling over the broadcast. And that humiliating loss, and the fear of that level of humiliation, led to the widespread adoption of the quarterback Neil and its acceptance as good sportsmanship. And in a sense, humiliation is the common factor behind these plays and the kerfuffle in BVS. One might say, as the cop and one commentator seems to, you've already won. There's no more point in playing, so just go easy on us. Stop trying to humiliate us any further. But another interpretation in favor of Metropolis might say, we're treating you like you're still a threat, doing you the honor of playing hard until the end, 
only through play can you show yourselves, and to defeat you without playing would humiliate you. Now that's a minority position and less likely, but ultimately we don't know. It could be more a division of philosophy than necessarily ill will. Things like the spread, statistics, and fantasy sports could complicate motives further. We do know that it was received as an insult whether or not it was intended as one. So action within the rules of the game may nevertheless violate unwritten boundaries, leading to grievances external to the game, like the fight that breaks out, which is explicitly against the rules and outside the game. Gotham doesn't take the loss well, and the commentator implies that there's going to be unrest or rioting in response. And that's what I want to cover for the rest of this episode, taking a look at how Lex handles losing to try and get a better idea of what was going on in the end, and what might happen next. I've been wanting to revisit Lex's endgame practically since we first discussed it, because for the sake of clarity and concision, I don't think we really compared how off-the-cuff his doomsday plan was compared to his more carefully calculated machinations. I leaned into his villainy for convenience, and to be fair, it certainly is there and intentionally in the film. There's a mythology around Superman, which is why there are kind of all these religious aspects to Superman. There are all these, frankly, godlike parallels. Lex is the Satan, you know, he's the kind of all evil, you know, in the same way, I guess Satan is sometimes depicted as charming. So Lex in that way is like the kind of mythological evil. But that feels like an oversimplification. Jesse's done a really cool job with Lex and making him more contemporary. He's young, he's multidimensional, he's smart, he's also difficult to place. He's all the things that you want from a villain in the sense that like when you think you've got him figured out, he reveals something else about himself. So Lex is meant to be multidimensional, hard to place, and elusive. Pinning his last act on fanaticism was convenient and true, but like Snyder says, there's more to reveal. Now, with that, obviously there's ambiguity and subjectivity. I'm not declaring this to be definitive, but perhaps another exploration into empathy. What I want to explore is the holes in the Doomsday Plan as a reflection of Lex's psychology. If you don't understand the mental state driving Lex to unleash Doomsday, it's easy to allege a lot of writing errors, to claim that the plan isn't airtight because the filmmakers overlooked issues. But if you really understand the story and the character, you'll see the contrast between Lex's previous plans and the Doomsday one is entirely intentional. And it's a puzzle that we can't quite figure out until his final confrontation with Batman in the film. Critics pointing out issues with Lex's plan is fettering over the arrangement of duck chairs on the Titanic, nitpicking irrelevant details when the entire ship is sinking. It's completely ignoring Lex's cosmic perspective, knowing the coming evil and the fate of the planet. Put simply, Lex had grand schemes for taking down Superman, who he had built into an evil god in his head. A sort of faux crisis to excuse his actions. But then he learns an actual evil god, Darkseid, is coming to devour the Earth, and the hypocrisy and the futility of his own ambitions are revealed. His false fears about Superman now manifestly true. He's now actually confronted with an existential crisis which he had only feigned before. When all the issues he wanted to artificially impose upon Superman to prove a point all actually turn out to be true, impending, and unstoppable, he becomes unhinged. When we caught up with Jesse Eisenberg, we asked him just what was Lex thinking when he created Doomsday? I think Lex becomes increasingly unhinged throughout the movie, and I also think he's a guy with like 40 backup plans. 
And so when one thing doesn't work out, he has another, and if that doesn't work out, he's another, And which is why I think he never feels that threatened by Superman and Batman, because he knows he always has the leverage. And uh, I think, yeah, his final act, in my opinion, was this kind of like a last-ditch effort to kind of throw it all, like leave it all on the table. That's a wonderful insight into the character with at least four major takeaways. First, Lex always has contingencies planned, meaning setbacks are anticipated and planned for. Second, Lex is never sincerely threatened by Superman or Batman because of his leverage and plans. Third, despite this, Lex grows increasingly unhinged. And fourth, and finally, his final act seems to be outside of those plans. Described as, quote, a last-ditch effort to leave it all on the table, unquote, characterizing it as a final, desperate gamble with nothing in reserve. No remaining backup plans, no fallbacks, no contingencies, no escape hatch, no future aspirations, nothing held back, no last-minute surprises, and so on. This last point stresses the fact that Lex's ambitions with respect to Doomsday are limited. There is no grand plan to use Doomsday to conquer, or to frame Superman for Doomsday, or to swoop in and act as humanity's savior killing Doomsday. What would be the point? There is no more game to play now that Darkseid is coming. Any such scheme would be undone by the coming evil. Lex has lost control over his own destiny. I think Lex's biggest fear, even more than his losing his own life, is losing power. He looks at a character like Superman, who is this incredibly powerful being from another planet, and feels that Superman doesn't deserve this power, that I should have this power, because I am a kind of self-made guy from a difficult upbringing. So I think Lex fears more than anything kind of losing control, so much so that Lex kind of puts himself in front of Superman and, uh, you know, almost asks Superman to tear him apart because Lex has no feeling for his own life. He's just about control. Eisenberg confirms Lex's fatalism when confronted with his greatest fear. With Superman, as we heard earlier, Lex never truly lost control because of his plans upon plans, knowledge and leverage were more than enough to leverage the Man of Steel to make him fall to his knees and bend to his will. What good is any of that against Darkseid? Darkseid completely and truly undoes Lex's sense of self, sense of control, and makes his knowledge, ambition, plans, and powers truly futile. And there are many ways one can react to that situation. In a way, Lex unintentionally hints at his. He says, I don't know how to lose, and pulls out another contingency plan. He's always had leverage, power, knowledge, and plans to get the upper hand if he didn't already have it. And now he's confronted with the end of the world, and everything that he's built is going to be meaningless. No matter how much he accumulates, no matter how much he schemes, he'll never be greater than Darkseid. And this amplifies the problems already latent in his psychology. Yes, this is the Easterland paradox, that amassing more goods does not bring happiness. And if you look that up in Wikipedia, you'd see Lex Luthor, you know, this guy who has everything and is absolutely tormented, miserable, and, and full of rage. I think it probably emphasizes whatever problems you had when you were poor. Lex is already filled with jealousy, xenophobic, and initially threatened by Superman's power. How much more would these same issues plague him once he learns about Darkseid? And I think in a way, Lex is kind of a xenophobe because, you know, he looks at this foreigner as a real threat to his own race. Lex views himself as a kind of savior of mankind. So he views Superman as just existentially wrong, like this guy should not exist. And that creates a very dangerous person. Lex decides to fight back. And I think Lex is uh, obsessed with, well, what he says, saving humanity. But I think really it's kind of just he's, he's obsessed with his own ambitions. I mean, I think Lex is threatened by Superman's 
power because I think Lex is the second most powerful person in Metropolis. And the second most powerful person is probably the most difficult position to be in. And in a way, the second most powerful person is really the least most powerful person because they're the one who always feel probably the most threatened. And I think Lex looks at Superman as a real personal threat. So what happens when you've lost, when the thing that you want now seems beyond your grasp? One response is to lash out at something else. And we've seen that psychology before in Zod lamenting his loss of purpose. His Krypton is over. He's lost. He could stop. He could surrender. In theory, he could change, repent, or reform. He could adopt Jor-El's vision of Krypton or embrace Cal as a fellow survivor. Yet his character is revealed in his reaction. Stripped of his purpose, he makes a new one to make this world suffer and seek revenge on Kal-El. We saw that psychology in the football game. The game's lost. They can't change that outcome. But in their frustration, they fight and they have a reputation for turning things ugly, perhaps rioting. So Lex, at least initially, has no contingency for Darkseid, his normal response to a setback. So he creates justifications for lashing out. Lex doesn't have a contingency because remember that Lex doesn't enter the scout ship until after the bombing. Before that, he wouldn't have access to the knowledge of Doomsday or Darkseid or a hundred thousand worlds. So nothing before entering the scout ship was or could have been in anticipation of Doomsday. That had to be planned after the fact, after learning about it. And incidentally, I know some people will try to use Lex's clothing to argue earlier intended entrance against the explicit editing of the film, but if you want a diegetic apologetic, well, one really isn't necessary. People can and do wear the same clothes sometimes. It's not dispositive or definitively conclusive of anything. It's not impossible for Lex to wear the same outfit twice. But if you really need an explanation why he might, well, it's built right there into the scene. When Lex first exits the airlock, he walks past a person clad head to toe in a clean room suit, and that suggests the standard and expected garb for interacting with the ship. Well, we know that Lex likes to defy conventional fashion choices, but not necessarily function. For example, when he's working with Zod's body, instead of wearing a lab coat or surgical gown, he wears a translucent raincoat, which performs essentially the same function. So Lex might recognize the function of a clean room suit with the scout ship, but he just decides that his clean suit is going to be an actual blue suit. He leaves the suit there to be his clean suit for his subsequent visit, which is why it shows up twice. He gets it wet the second time, so he wears something different the next time. And that repeats for the rest of his visits. Okay, but that's enough of that tangent. Even if you don't buy the explicit editing of the film, you can come to a similar conclusion simply based on the available time. Lex had near nearly two years to plan Superman's downfall. But even if he learns about Doomsday the same day he's granted access, not to mention all the time it takes to parse the knowledge of a 100,000 worlds and more, that's still only days to plan compared to years. So the plan would have noticeably different qualities. Regardless, it wasn't something planned for or expected. It was a massive, humbling, terrifying revelation that suddenly put all of Lex's ambitions out of reach. Superman was one thing. He could could overcome Superman, but Lex would be a gnat to a being who subjugates and consumes worlds. So, like Zod, like Gotham, Lex lashes out to create strife with antisocial behavior to tear down and denigrate. Not because that behavior is constructive or ideal, but it is what some people do when they don't know how to lose. Let's look at some of the holes in Lex's plans, showing how it was a desperate last act rather than some grand intentional plan. One of the easiest examples is simply survive 
conniving his own plan. We already have the earlier interview where Eisenberg says that Lex's loss of control is so great he practically begs Superman to tear him apart. On the helipad, Lex uses Martha held hostage to hold Superman back. However, in the scout ship, he's only too happy to reveal Martha's been roasted alive because Superman is late and out of time. So if he were to tell Superman that his mother was dead by his command and design, what was supposed to keep Lex alive? There's no more hostage holding Superman back, and Doomsday's not done, he's still 20 seconds away. The Kryptonian sentry robots are no help. They're not between Superman and Lex. They did nothing to stop or restrain Superman. They did nothing to save Lex from Doomsday, and they did nothing to stop his arrest. In those first two cases, maybe the sentry robots really couldn't do anything in time, but in that last case, if Lex was truly in command of the ship and didn't want to go quietly, the sentries probably could cause a human SWAT team problems. And again, this risk of Superman killing him isn't some unforeseen thing. It was something he planned for on the helipad. In fact, Lex planned for this entire situation. He orchestrated Superman's arrival at the ship around this time, specifically to break the bad news and reveal Doomsday. Lex could have picked a different time or a different place, so Lex had to appreciate the high probability of his death, which undermines the idea that he had long-term goals beyond. But let's assume that he's safe from Superman. What about Doomsday? We know for a fact that Lex wasn't safe from Doomsday. That's practically Doomsday's first act, to strike out at Lex in a way that surely would have killed him if Superman hadn't stopped the fist of that abomination. However, for the sake of argument, let's just pretend that Doomsday is 100% obedient. Well, honestly, I don't even know what that means, short of a telepathic connection between Lex and Doomsday. Is Superman just going to sit there and listen as Lex provides instructions? Is Doomsday going to understand anything with nuance beyond the most basic commands? What happens when Doomsday is too far away from Lex to give a command? Can Doomsday stop himself from exploding when he's near Lex? Regardless, for the sake of argument, let's say that Doomsday magically knows Lex's every wish and desire at all times, right out of the box. How does Doomsday keep Lex safe? The bottom line is that he can't. The US has already shown willingness to unleash military munitions in Metropolis if need be, going as far as a nuke over its airspace, risking fighter jets raining from the sky, or attack helicopters launching missiles downtown. Not to mention the siege of Midway City, with tanks, gunships, ballistic missiles, elite soldiers, and illicit squads, without even going nuclear, just using normal conventional weapons like bombs. How can Doomsday protect Lex from an entirely normal military response? He really can't. Lex is dead inside a week if his only defense is Doomsday. And that's just against the normal military, without taking into account Superman, who isn't sitting by idle all this time, or metahumans like the Flash, who Lex knows about. If Superman separates Doomsday from Lex, you don't need a speedster to swoop in and take Lex out, but it's certainly a possibility from what Lex knows. Suicide Squad shows us the government will involve metahumans to take out an NHE. If the squad was up and running, Enchantress takes Lex out, either literally or figuratively, in an instant. He can be killed or captured by Enchantress in a blink. So it wouldn't make sense for Lex to think that Doomsday could keep him safe. Lex has enough experience with military intelligence and assassination to know that he wouldn't be long for this world if Doomsday is his only defense. That wouldn't be his plan or expectation. Of course, all of that analysis is assuming that Doomsday would magically and impossibly comport with everything that Lex wants him to do. And that's born out of fans wanting to patch Lex's last day plans with something seemingly logical, trying to argue that the specific arrangement of deck chairs on the Titanic 
mechanic makes the most sense. In fact, Lex says a line to that effect that's excluded from both cuts of the film, but in the special features. Obeys only me. Well, first, let me posit the possibility that Eisenberg might have improvised that line. He's mentioned improvisation in several interviews, including the following one. I like to improvise only insofar as it keeps things fresh for me. You know, the first time you read something as an actor, in my opinion, is usually kind of the best because there's a kind of fresh reality to it. So I like to kind of improvise to keep things fresh, but I did not want to change Chris's wonderful dialogue. However... Even if it was originally intended as part of the script, here are some of the reasons I find it properly excluded. As we've already discussed, obedience is of limited utility. Even a perfect magical obedience doesn't turn Lex into somebody who can personally hold and maintain power. At best, his intentions live on in his creation, but he himself is vulnerable to termination regardless of Doomsday's obedience. Lex already has obedience. Doomsday is dumb. However, with leverage and a hostage, Lex was able to make Superman bend to his will. If control over a god was really the point, Lex already had that with Superman. Maybe Doomsday would obey only Lex while Superman had competing loyalties, but Superman is a smart, sentient being, capable of much more complex, nuanced instructions. How or why would Lex believe or assume obedience? It's not earthly knowledge. Lex already knows how it is between fathers and sons. He was a prodigal. He refers to the story of Icarus. He turns his father's painting upside down and confesses his father's sins to an alien atrocity. Why would he expect any more fealty from Doomsday than he gave his own father? Well, it's not Kryptonian knowledge. Krypton doesn't have foolproof obedience technology. If it did, they wouldn't have prison ships like the Black Zero. They wouldn't have military coups like Zod's Sword of Rao Rebellion. And they wouldn't have rogue scientists engaging in natural birth, the theft of the Codex, and an unauthorized space launch. So if it's not knowledge or a certainty, but only a guess or assumption, then that's a terrible basis for your plan. Lex's actions all hinge on the confidence in Doomsday's specifications as greater than Superman's. It is utterly pointless to do all this if you're only guessing at Doomsday's capabilities. And Lex wasn't guessing or assuming. He knew Doomsday could kill Superman, just like he didn't guess or assume Doomsday's loyalty, just because of a bit of blood. Why the blood then? I don't think Lex necessarily had any illusions of loyalty or obedience. Lex has a kind of like Freudian psychology and he creates kind of a son. He thinks of Doomsday like a son. And he has this almost paternal feeling for Doomsday. Lex wants to be a part of Doomsday for the same reasons that we want children. Not because we anticipate absolute robotic obedience and service from our children, but because we want a part of ourselves to live on and experience the dreams we can't achieve for ourselves. Lex would never kill Superman with his bare hands, but Doomsday would. Lex couldn't convince the world that power like Superman's must be evil, but Doomsday could. Lex is unlikely to survive the coming apocalypse, but Doomsday might. That's why Lex had a paternal attachment to Doomsday, as a legacy and statement, not as a puppet or a pawn. Embedded in that belief is the understanding that your kids can turn on you. If Doomsday is as dangerous and as ravenous as he'd expect, there's a high possibility of Doomsday killing Lex, yet Lex brings him into being anyways. Consider Doomsday's name for a moment. If Doomsday is exclusively meant to destroy Superman, Lex could have done that already. If he never involved Batman, never asked for an import license, and just wanted Superman dead, with his kryptonite 
Clark's secret identity and the element of surprise, Lex could have easily killed him. Instead, Doomsday is the destruction of a symbol, of belief in supreme benevolent power. Inherent in that malevolence is the destruction of things beyond Superman, collateral to their combat, like Metropolis and including Lex. This was a plan without regard for his own life, just as Jesse Eisenberg said in that earlier clip. The communion scene further cements Lex's absolute disregard for Doomsday Unleashed. Lex appears to be caught more or less preoccupied, not with trying to command or control Doomsday, not with trying to execute a plan to stop him, not with anything really, but communing with cosmic concerns. So, shifting away from Doomsday, for additional evidence that Lex's endgame is in the context of Darkseid, let's look at Lex trying to get away with it. Instead of Lex trying to escape with his life, let's look at what he does or doesn't do to avoid getting caught. Earlier in the film, it's established that Lex has a lot of tools for getting away with his crimes. One of the main ones that distinguish him from the bat is using pawns indirectly, striking from afar. I think Lex is happier probably pulling the strings and having other people kill each other rather than getting into the fray himself. Lex tries to use methods that are difficult to trace. Lex tries to use cover-ups and assassinations. Lex tries to make his plans look natural, and Lex never makes his motives clear. And we can see how all of these break down with the Doomsday plan by comparison. For the bombing, Lex is using Kanaizev, Kahina, Keef, and he uses the committee and provokes the Batman. But when it comes to Doomsday, Lex does a lot of it himself. He's pushing the buttons. He's pushing Lois off the building, and he's pushing Superman to kill directly in person. Lex initially tries to make things hard to trace, using proprietary metals that no one can trace outside of a Secretary of Defense who isn't even willing to go on record with the connection. He sends anonymous provocations to Clark, and no one knows about Lex's ties to Kahina, Keefe, or Santos until it's too late. No one is coming after Lex for his smuggling operation, his intelligence breaches, or his assassinations. But when it comes to Doomsday, Lex has to log in to the scout ship at least twice to make it happen. First, he has to bring Zod's body to be the host, then he has to return to his tower to provoke Superman, and then he has to go back to the scout ship to await Superman and Doomsday. From Lex's first access of the ship, we know the procedure. He's stopped by several armed military guards, where he has to show his credentials to be allowed in. So there's no question about where he was when the suspicious light show starts up and Doomsday leaps forth from the ship. The lightning light show is absolutely something that Lex cannot take back, irrespective of the outcome of Batman vs. Superman. Whether Batman wins or Superman wins, Lex has already been logged as entering the ship site. The ship starts arcing lightning, the city starts suffering blackouts and terrorism is assumed. Compared to his previous plans, it's not even an issue of tracing. It absolutely will be traced back to him. Instead, this is some sort of scramble to excuse the attention that this is definitely going to bring directly to himself as a culprit. Okay, the next tool. With Nairomi, Kahina, Keefe, and Congress, Lex used cover-ups and assassinations. No exonerating evidence escaped Nairomi. Keefe's apartment is made up to enhance his crazy narrative. Kahina and Senator Finch are both silenced. And initially, that's how I interpreted the dialogue between Lex and Lois on the helipad. I've proven what you've done, says Lois. Unfortunately, that will blow away, like sand in the desert, says Lex. And basically, Lex could be saying that he was going to cover up and silence Lois's story like he had done before. But consider how Lex is actually arrested. He goes down in connection with the bombing of Capitol Hill based on Lois's investigation. And it's not like this is a surprise 
surprise to him. He knows about Lois's investigation. He knows what he's about to do. When he pushes Lois off the ledge, he's expecting Superman to come and likely save her. So if he was intending to cover up her investigation or to silence Lois, he would have already had plans and systems in place to do so. He would have somebody ransack her research or have somebody ready to make her demise look like an accident. He'd have reports ready to discredit anything that manages to make it out. But none of that happens. Lex basically lets Lois take him down, which potentially changes the meaning of Lex's reply. Lex says, unfortunately, that will blow away, like sand in the desert. He might not be speaking about Lois's proof or story. He might be speaking about the relevance and the consequences. If he knows that Darkseid is coming and the world as they know it is ending, what does her proof matter? And that makes the sincerity across the line consistent. If he was talking about covering it up, he's insincere in calling it unfortunate while being sincere about the proof blowing away. However, if he was talking about the state of the world, then he's sincere in finding it unfortunate and sincere about the world being blown away. As far as we can tell, once Lex is onto Lois, he takes no preemptive measures to protect himself against her or to stop her, aligning with the idea that Lex thinks the world is about to end. Two more quick ones. Lex tries to make his plans look natural. In Nairobi, it's meant to look like the natural consequences of an interview gone bad, escalated by Superman's intervention. His bombing was meant to look like it was entirely planned and executed by the extremist Wallace Keefe. His provocation of Batman was meant to make Batman feel like the conflict was entirely his own idea. But what about Doomsday and Superman? Well, Doomsday, we've already discussed it. There's absolutely nothing natural about Zod's body disappearing, being logged into the scout ship, and a massive light show causing power outages across the city before a giant monster erupts from your location. And Superman? Lex straight up kidnaps Lois Lane and Martha Kent. There is absolutely no guile to that, no hidden agenda, no normal narrative that might fit. Lex can't pretend that that is anything other than a frontal assault on the Man of Steel. We can also see that Lex is typically pretty murky about his motives. He doesn't tell Congress exactly what he wants. Kahina doesn't know his larger goals. Keith thinks Lex wants to help him speak out. And Kanaizev only cares about what Lex is paying and so on. Yet with Lois and Superman, he more or less confesses his crimes. He's about as transparent as Lex can manage to be. And there's absolutely no requirement that he confront them in this manner or tell them these things. Someone else could have delivered these diatribes as Lex stated in the shadows. But Lex is compelled to do it, like a dying man's last wishes, a deathbed confession, a last chance to spill his guts before it's all over. And uh, I can't resist the tangent. Two quick points on Lex's helipad monologue. Quick, quick. The first is the fact that it's mostly a monologue. It just isn't really a conversation. It isn't a discussion between two people going back and forth. This is Lex letting something off his chest. And if you trace it really carefully, it's mostly Lex needing to hear himself talk. And this isn't isolated to just this scene. I mean, there's no one to appreciate Lex's invocation of Icarus. And he couldn't be certain that Finch would spot his jar in time. And he's constantly making these oblique references that seem mostly for his own delight. This has implications elsewhere, but now is not the time for that. My second quick observation is how completely perfectly it condenses the three unfortunate assumptions and disagreement into just one rant. When someone is attached 
to their own rightness. They leap to explain all who disagree with them as either ignorant, idiotic, or evil, unaware of the facts, unable to understand them, or willfully wrong. And Lex levels each of these to Clark in turn, first informing him of the tribal nature of God, then showing how the problem of evil has eluded his understanding, and then finally calling Clark a fraud and a demon, judging him innately and decidedly evil. Lex justifies himself exactly as you'd expect him to, and I absolutely love the accurate psychology of scenes like these, and the reminder to check our own assumptions and psychology before we cast dispersions on people we disagree with. Okay, back to the differences. Lastly, Lex never tries to make a run for it. He doesn't try to escape, resist, or run away. He's in the ship, waiting for whatever may come. From the world engine, we've seen that Liquid Geo can form defense systems. And from the scout ship, we know that the sentry robots have defenses as well. Yet Lex doesn't use either of those against the SWAT team. He just holds his hands up and surrender. Between all the tools available to Lex, you could probably come up with a dozen different ways he could have executed a similar plan, but with more protections for himself, or a higher likelihood of getting away with it. But remember what Lex knows and his mindset. Coming up with better plans to get away with it, all of that is just arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. There's no point to getting away with it if Darkseid is coming to condemn the Earth. There's no point in accumulating power when Darkseid's power will always dwarf your own. There's no point in making humanity think you're their savior when that's all going to end when you can't save them from Darkseid. The best that Lex can do, not knowing how to lose, is throw a fit and take Superman man down with a fearic I told you so before Darkseid comes and actually tells them all so. Except that's not the end of the story, right? When Lex says, I don't know how to lose, what's Superman's reply? You'll learn. And Lex laughs and sarcastically says, ha, I'll learn. And of course, in a film filled with so much brilliant irony, that's exactly what happens. We compared Lex's existential reaction to Darkseid as similar to Zod's rampage. When denied what he wants and expects, like many critics, instead of taking constructive action, he tears down and destroys and tries to spread pain and misery as an expression of his own angst. He forgets himself and his capacities, and for a moment, he's as limited as Zod. But normally, when Lex has hope and ambition, goals, and determination, he has a toolbox brimming with tools when compared to Zod. This episode, we've already talked about just a handful of them, but we haven't touched on his wealth, his intelligence, his social capital, his ability to manipulate, and so on. Lex isn't doomed to follow in Zod's footsteps because he has some of the hope that Jor-El sent Kal-El to Earth to find. Zod falls into that cliche. Everything's a nail when all you have is a hammer. He can only treat every problem as a military one with a military response. But our Lex in BVS is only starting out. Lex in the film is very maniacal. He's just kind of starting out. He's on his way to becoming the iconic Lex Luthor in the comic books. I think at the end of the movie, I think you probably have the sense that what you have been seeing from Lex Luthor is a kind of origin type story. When asked whether he'd like to return to the role, Heisenberg said, Yeah, 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 I, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's a character that is endlessly interesting to me and I think also kind of endlessly unpredictable. So it seems like, yeah, he could show up, you know, either as like a horrible, you know, worse villain, or I could also see him kind of turning the corner and realizing, you know, the error of his ways. I would love to be a 
a part of that world, especially in this role, because the character is so odd and yeah. eccentric and, uh, you know, on the one hand could see him becoming like a good guy because he is a thinker and he can maybe reason out what would work best. I don't think he's just villainous for its own sake, but I could also see him obviously spiraling into even far more Machiavellian destruction. It's interesting that Eisenberg sees the potential for change and that potential reawakens in Lex because of Superman and the Trinity, because of Batman and the League. See, Lex's solution to the initial existential crisis was to defame and destroy a god. He figured out how to do it, and he mostly did. However, his real crisis came when he learned of a truly evil god. So he momentarily gave up. All his plans went out the window, his tools scattered about unused. But here's the thing. Despite his absolute certainty that Doomsday would destroy Superman, and it did, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman managed to stop Doomsday too. Whether he'd admit it or not, they gave him hope that together they might have a fighting chance to be able to save Earth from Darkseid. Lex sees himself in Batman, which is one of the reasons he selects Batman as his knight. My character, who's so eager to take down Superman, looks to the neighboring town, Gotham City, and says, uh, the only guy who is like me, that is a human being, and is very powerful and self-made, or is Bruce Wayne. If Batman could cross a great gulf of hatred to work alongside Superman to bring down a greater power, maybe there was hope against Darkseid. And maybe after Darkseid's out of the picture, Earth might have a future. Correspondingly, Lex might have a future. Meaning that his ambitions again have merit, and that there's a point and a purpose to his life, and that there's still game to play with many ways left to play it. And I think we see some of this in Lex's last scene in the film with Batman. Note that this has to be sometime after his arrest, after he knows knows what happened to Doomsday after he knows that the Trinity teamed up to save them. It's only a few lines of dialogue, but it indicates that Lex has picked his tool set back up because he starts to use them again in this confrontation. He's trying to get away with it by feigning insanity. He's hiding his motives. He doesn't confess everything in court to the public or to Batman. He's playing word games, obscuring his meaning so that only Batman would get it, but not anyone overhearing. He's holding back leverage. He's tipping his hand that he knows Batman's identity, but not revealing it to anyone yet. And he's actually afraid because he has a future to protect and he's giving an unnecessary warning. If Lex has given up, he could reveal everything or he could say nothing considering the end inevitable. But instead, like with Bruce's identity, he's teasing knowledge which expresses his desperation and urgency, but without giving it all away to develop leverage. Finally, it's not in this scene itself, but it's apparent that he's letting Lois, Martha, Alfred, and Bruce live. We've already seen his toolbox includes the ability to kill Kahina or slay Santos with but a word. If he wanted it, Lex could have them killed, but he's left them alive despite their part in his capture. So why are they alive? Maybe because he needs them in the fight against Darkseid. Lex has learned how to lose. He has hope. He's been saved physically and philosophically by Superman. And I like how this opens up his character to so many possibilities beyond just being fanatical. If, in the back of his mind, the world is still going to go on, he can be Darkseid's lackey for a time until he gets taken down. Normally, Lex's ambition would never let him be second to Darkseid forever, but if it's just for a while, he could muster it. It could also mean helping or teaming up with the Justice League to ensure that the threat doesn't end the world. And it also means that Lex stops defining himself purely in opposition to Superman. So he reawakens his own independent ambition, which can be either pro or antisocial. They could be at odds with Superman instead of being at odds because of Superman. 
Lex picking up his tools again shows that despite his anxiety about Darkseid, he thinks that there's going to be a tomorrow. So when the critic asks, what is Lex's endgame? Ask, what's the endgame for Zod's rampage? What's the endgame for a riot when your team loses? With Doomsday, Lex was reflecting what we do when we forget how to lose. When we tell ourselves the world is over and it's Doomsday. Of course, dealing with losing, failure, and setbacks is way too large a topic to effectively cover, but maybe we can just pick out just four applicable principles and illustrations. Not a definitive approach, not the end-all be-all, but guidelines or principles to be judicially applied with discretion and not blind adherence. So number one, failure is inevitable, not identity. Number two, embrace iteration instead of the God complex. Number three, review your end game. And number four, persistence and resilience. So principle one is preceded by a caveat, which could be principle zero. For anyone trying, failure is inevitable, not identity. So hopefully you already understand the need to try. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take and all that. So assuming that you're already trying with respect to identity, too often failure is so stigmatized, people fear being defined by it, or they allow it to seep into their identity. In BVS, you can see that this has already happened to Batman. What falls is fallen, is that idea expressly. That it wasn't simply an event that occurred or a circumstance, but something that fundamentally changed the nature and the characterization of the thing. It's not just something that fell and which could and did rise, but instead it takes on the identity of fallen. Like when Bruce says, we're criminals. We've always been criminals. Bruce has internalized his sense of failure. He says, this may be the only thing I do that matters in the face of 20 years of crime fighting. And in Lex, we see a slightly different way his sense of failure warped his identity. Before Superman, if you asked Lex how he sees himself, what his purpose in life is, what makes him happy, I don't think any of it revolves around his existential crisis with God, goodness, and power. Certainly not in such stark relief or such explicit terms as in his issues with Superman. Lex's seething jealousy and inferiority complex, his sense of losing or failing to the Superman, almost rewrites his entire identity around that conflict. He suddenly thinks of himself as a necessary savior to mankind, as a pro Promethean hero as someone deeply invested in the problems of evil god and power. Lex let this sense of being second to Superman write himself into a corner where he rants and raves about gods and tribes and holiness when a scant few years ago these things would probably be the furthest from his mind. Superman is at risk of the same after the bombing. He's so affected by it that he tries to shed his identity. He says the Superman was never real, he denies the symbol of his house, and he attributes his actions to a ghost. However, unlike Bruce and Lex, Superman bounces back quickly because despite his feelings, he doesn't lash out in antisocial ways to hurt others or himself. And in retreat and reflection, he's reassured that this is not who you are. His father's story helps Clark understand that you're not a hero just because somebody bakes you a hero cake, but you're also not a monster or evil because of unwanted consequences. His father's actions led to undesirable harm, but none of that changed Clark's relationship to him. Clark still loved him, still saw him as good, and still missed him. Clark's relationship and love to find him more than any failure. And Jonathan's story is a reminder that failure happens to us all and we have to forgive ourselves of it like our loved ones do. Clark realizes he isn't defined by his setbacks and that he has to stop judging himself but see himself through the eyes of those who love him like Jonathan did when he met Martha who restored his faith in good. Clark's reminded to view the world through the lens of love, not failure. Okay, a reminder before moving on to the next principle. These are broad principles meant to be applied with nuance and discretion 
And if your application is absurd, then you're not approaching it as a principle, but as an unintended rule. Okay, principle two is embracing iteration instead of the God complex. And this could be a callback to our reoccurring themes of organic versus engineered or principled and grays versus codified absolutes. Planning is a good thing. Most of us could do with a little more of it. There's that adage, failing to plan is planning to fail. But there's a danger with too much planning. Lex's 40 backup plans means that he's carefully thought out each scenario, prepared for the best and worst case, and has alternatives and contingencies in every instance. So he's never surprised, always prepared, and it's all part of the plan. The problem with planning to that degree is that it fosters a God complex, the need for a perfect godlike control over everything in the plan, believing that you can design this perfect jewel-like thing that will anticipate and address all your hopes, dreams, fears, and worries from conception. Yet such plans come from where you are at the time of planning, with all the limitations in time and space, knowledge and character, prejudgment, prejudice, and ignorance of the future. It imagines a crystal ball that we don't have and certainty that we shouldn't have if we're humble in the face of the future and our own growth. The understanding that we're not God without the humility to accept the unexpected, or the idea that you might change. The God complex pressures one into a fragile perfectionism that shatters into instability when things go to pot and not according to plan. As UCLA coach John Wooden would say, quote, flexibility is the key to stability, unquote. For Lex, sure, Superman was a speed bump for all of Lex's ambitions, but Darkseid utterly destroyed them as a completely incalculable complication. I think it's fair to say that no one's five-year plan includes the end of the world seriously. Instead, most successful things in life arise out of iteration, and iteration doesn't just mean an unbroken chain of unqualified success. It nearly always means trial and error, testing, experimenting, trying, failing, and responding to that by trying again, trying something different, trying over and over again to get better and better. It's how screenplays get written and how films get produced and edited. It's how life changes, how relationships grow, how designs improve. It's how you advance professionally, how genetics work, and how art and engineering often do. It's how you develop resilience and why success or art are not fully formulaic or fully understood. Superman's saga across these films so far is nothing but dogged effort at iteration, trying again and again, learning and growing, changing with every attempt. We see it in how his fighting evolves, how he relates to international borders, how he relates to the world, how he relates to the government, and how he relates to himself. With Batman alone, he tries approaching the Batman six different ways from Sunday as a story, with a threat, under duress, and as an ally, even as Perry keeps shutting him down, even knowing that the Gotham PD turns a blind eye, even with Martha's life on the line, and even after Batman's foot was on his throat. That's a ton of iteration, trial and error, failure and success, character growth and development for just one character in the film. In life, people don't arrive fully formed and without flaw, and it's good to see the struggle and the striving towards our better selves rather than just assume it, take it for granted, and use it as a measuring stick with which we torment ourselves under a perfectionist's unforgiving complex. Embracing iteration allows you to destigmatize failure, accept it as a part of the process, and allow improvements to come organically instead of believing you can ordain it.
And this was very much Jor-El's vision of choice and chance and natural birth. The free will to choose something other than a predetermined, predestined path meant the possibility of making mistakes, of picking something less than what you would have been, but also the potential to be something greater than what was intended. It's why no concept of Jor-El's Krypton included a return to the programming of the Genesis Chamber. It's why he prefaces the greatness that Cal will lead them to with stumbling and falling inherent in the process and to be embraced as enabling it. It's good to know how to lose. Okay, principle three, on the idea of the endgame, when you've lost, when you've failed and you're frustrated, before you default to bad habits, before you blame shift or strike out, before you forget yourself and abandon your life or seek to do antisocial harm, a good principle might be to stop, take stock, and check on your endgame. Is your present course of action going to take you any closer to where you want to be and not just where you feel you have to be right now? Zod wanted to restore his vision of Krypton. If he was capable of calming down, capable of compromise, he could have achieved a Krypton. And if he couldn't compromise, the fact is there was still hope for his vision. If he had the cold, emotionless logic of a Vulcan instead of the hot-blooded passion of a Kryptonian, he might see that having found the Codex, with time and patience, he might still be able to find another world engine, another scout ship, and another candidate for new Krypton other than Earth. His programming prevented him from taking stock, but yours doesn't have to. On Krypton, with the end of the world imminent, they clung to their procedures and practices entrenched after centuries of tradition rather than consider their endgame. What was the point of all their practices? They were meant to perpetuate their culture, their civilization, and their people. But if the planet's destruction is taking that all away, why continue with those practices? Jorel checked the endgame. He realized the futility of keeping comfortable policies in place and instead upended them to save some last vestige of themselves. He didn't just ignore their failure, but acted accordingly. In Man of Steel, Lois checks her endgame. Is Clark a story or a person? And of course, like any principle, it can be applied in error. Bruce makes a faulty check on his endgame and comes to fatalistic conclusions similar to Lex. Just as Lex, in some sense, concludes that nothing I do matters, Bruce concludes nothing I've done matters. Superman falls into the same trap, but he gets corrected by Jonathan. So as a corollary, let's say surround yourselves with people you trust to evaluate your endgame. Lex's many lies left him with no one to check his endgame, to confront him on whether what he was doing was wise or would really make him happy. If only Bruce would have listened to Alfred earlier on, much of the conflict could have been spared. But Clark has the incredible habit of seeking counsel and checking in before major life decisions. Before he surrenders himself to humanity, before he submits himself to the Senate, before he retreats into the solitude, and before he decides to hang up the cape, each time he consults with somebody who can comment on his endgame. A priest, his mother, Lois, and his father. And in a wonderful reflection of reality, he doesn't just automatically do whatever they advise. He tries to let it influence him, but ultimately he makes his own decision, whether that's to still go to Washington or being unable to completely listen to Lois. At least he has the habit and tries. And fortunately, he does eventually listen to the Jonathan living in his heart. We aren't emotionless robots. We can't always quell our passions, but we can check in with others who might be seeing more clearly, who can look out for our interests, who can confirm our actions are pro-social and not going to harm ourselves or others. If your endgame amounts to a frustrated tantrum because you don't know how to lose, you need to reevaluate. Lex is, in my opinion, kind of like the petulant child who's not getting his way. Okay, last one, and let me try to keep this quick. Quick. Number four, persistent.
resistance and resilience. As we discussed back in episode 32, a healthy approach to brokenness and healing only makes you stronger. If you synthesize some of the above principles and don't take on losing as a negative identity, each successive attempt, adaptation, and evolution, your successes and failures, iterations and improvements will make you a persistent and resilient person. Resilient people experience, rather than repress, their emotions. They tend towards optimism moderated by realism. They build and have strong support systems. They grow and learn and have grace for themselves and others. And finally, they're endlessly grateful. I am so encouraged to see that the characters in these films, the actors portraying them, and the filmmakers behind them have continued to exhibit resilience to show that they know how to go on. Instead of thinking of things as the binary, pass-fail, perfect or wrong, precisely according to plan or not. If you think about most things in life as journeys of discovery, then it's only natural that there will be inevitable detours, setbacks, and errors on the way to that eventual goal. It's a process that you must patiently have grace with. One, expect setbacks. Two, embrace the journey. And three, anticipate tomorrow. This idea is repeated throughout these films. Expect setbacks, embrace the journey, anticipate tomorrow. They'll race behind you. They'll stumble. They'll fall expect setbacks. But in time, they will join you in the sun. Embrace the journey. Have patience with it. You will help them accomplish wonders. Anticipate and have hope for tomorrow. People are afraid of what they don't understand. It will be a huge burden for anyone to bear. Expect setbacks. One day, you're going to think of them as blessings. Embrace the journey with patience. You were sent for a reason. He's going to change the world. You were meant for greater things. Anticipate tomorrow. We fight We kill, we betray one another, expect setbacks, but we can rebuild, we can do better, embrace the journey, be patient, we will, we have to, hope for tomorrow. Others will try to take your travels and call them failures, define you a loser, and claim it's doomsday. However, you control the narrative you tell yourself. You can enjoy the journey, reject rejection, and have hope. We started with sports. Let's end with somebody who absolutely knows what it is to win, but never factored it into his view of success. We mentioned him already, Coach John Wooden. John Wooden was more teacher than basketball coach. He was praised for his leadership of young men on and off the court. Recognized by most as the greatest coach in the history of basketball, his philosophy of teaching players lessons in life will serve as his ultimate gift. His message, simple, success is striving to be the very best you can be. It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. But it was at UCLA where he wrote his legacy of greatness. Wooden arrived at UCLA with a basic philosophy, be quick, but don't hurry. His teams were quick to win championships, an unprecedented 10 national titles, a record 88 consecutive wins, 38 straight victories in the NCAA championships, four undefeated seasons, seven championships in a row. He coached, taught basketball legends, all the while imparting basic wisdoms. Our 10 championships at UCLA, they were just the icing on the cake. There is more value in the journey than in the victory itself. A man of greatness, a man of goodness. He wrote in his final book, The Journey is Better Than the Inn, adding, make each day of your journey a masterpiece. In life and in everything, there's going to be peaks and valleys. The strength of a person's character depends on their ability to accept both 
Success and failure are going to have both. I coined my own definition of success, which is peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. I believe that's true. If you make the effort to do the best of which you're capable, trying to improve the situation that exists for you, I think that's success, and I don't think others can judge that. I think it's like character and reputation. Your reputation is what you're perceived to be. Your character is what you really are, and I think the character is uh, much more important than what you are perceived to be. I'd hope they'd both be good, but uh, they don't necessarily be the same. According to my definition of success, faith and patience. And I say to you, in whatever you're doing, you must be patient. You have to have patience. We want things to happen to us. We talk about our youth being impatient a lot, and they are. Uh, they want to change everything. They think all change is progress. And we get a little older, we sort of let things go, and we forget that there is no progress without change. So you must have patience, and I believe that we must have faith. I believe that we must believe, really believe, not just, not just give it word service, believe that things will work out as they should, providing we do what we should. I think our tendency is to hope that things will turn out the way we want them to, so much of the time, but we don't do the things that uh, are necessary to make those things uh, become reality. Reminds me of another set of threes that my dad tried to get across to us. Don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. You get out there and whatever you're doing, do it the best of your ability. No one can do more than that. My punishment will tell you, never heard me mention winning. Never mention winning. My idea is that you can lose when you outscore somebody in a game, and you can win when you're outscored. I've felt that way on certain occasions at various times, and I, w I just wanted to be able to be able to hold their head up after a game. I used to say that when a game is over and you see somebody that didn't know the outcome, I hope they couldn't tell by your actions whether you outscored an opponent or the opponent outscored you. That's what really matters. If you make your effort to do the best you can regularly, the results will be about what they should be. Not necessarily what you'd want them to be, but they'll be about what they should. And only you will know whether you can do that. And that's what I wanted from them uh, more than anything else. And, but I wanted the, the score of a game to be the uh, byproduct uh, of these other things and, and not the end itself. Cervantes said, the journey is better than the end. And I like that. I think that is. It's getting there. Sometimes when you get there, there's almost a letdown. But it's getting there that's the fun. I like to, as a basketball coach at UCLA, I liked our practices to be the journey and the game would be the end, the end result. And I'd like to go up and sit in the stands and, and watch the players play and see whether I'd done a decent job during the week. There again, it's getting the players to get that self-satisfaction knowing that they've made the effort to do the best of which they are capable. Have I rambled enough? <laughs> <laughs> Coach, that's my line. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. If you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. son.
So three things. First, I just want to let you know, I haven't called it quits, but I don't have routine time to make episodes. So they'll come out unexpectedly like this one. Really, the only reason this one came out is because I got sick and I had time to do it while sick. Second, I had a segment about Superman's super hearing and I cut that out because it was just too much of a tangent. But I'm going to tack that on the end here as an extra. Just forgive the abrupt stop. Third and finally, our closing song has a mild language advisory. So well, that's it. Hope you enjoy these extras. Have a great Super Bowl weekend. You're the answer, son. When we look at the tools that Lex isn't using, but which he's used in the past, we're practicing proof by contradiction. We've used that form of argument many times in the past, especially with respect to Clark having super speed before discovering flight. We just didn't call it by its formal name, proof by contradiction, or you might have heard it called reductio ad absurdum. The idea is simple. You start out with the premise you wish to prove and assume the reverse is true. Then you follow your assertions to their logical conclusion until a contradiction arises, establishing that the reversed premise can't be true, and therefore the premise that you wanted to prove is true. So with our super speed examples, we performed the thought experiment of assuming that Clark had effortless, effective, invisible, interactive super speed, like the Flash or in some of tradition. And in that case, we put Clark through a number of situations exhibited in the film with the same motives, opportunities, but with these new means and asked ourselves, does it make sense that Clark would behave as if he didn't have those powers? And that gives rise to a contradiction. If Clark had the powers, then he'd certainly use them to evacuate the oil rig workers, to not bother with hitchhiking, to save Jonathan, to investigate Ellesmere, and so on. Therefore, the more logical conclusion is not that Clark refused to use a power that he had in all these circumstances, but instead that he doesn't have the power proposed by the critic in their faulty premise. We've covered this many times in past episodes, but just as an exercise, let's apply this to the power of superhearing to the point of near total omniscience in Batman v Superman. The snap judgment, the easy interpretation, is that Superman can find Lois at will and hear her at all times under all circumstances. That Superman can elect to be omniscient at will. Putting aside explicit scenes to the contrary for the moment, let's pretend that Superman has this ability. If we followed some scenes to their logical conclusion, what contradictions arise? And there are almost too many to list. If Superman was monitoring Lois, he might have arrived in time to save the undercover CIA agent talent. Instead, it's three and a half minutes before Superman is even in the same airspace. If Lois was in immediate jeopardy, she could have been killed several times over before Superman arrived. My theory of Superman's response time is that he was not monitoring Lois directly, but instead monitoring the drones, but that's a theory for another time. If Clark was omniscient, Lois would not have been able to hide the bullet from him in the bath. Instead, Lois knows that she can keep secrets from him, and so long as we're talking about Lois, she knows Superman's powers and limitations. So let's look briefly at her actions under this lens. If Lois believed that Superman had omniscient super hearing, was always monitoring her, and could get in contact with him simply by screaming or whispering under her breath, why doesn't she call out for Superman as soon as Jimmy is threatened? Why is it an explicit plot point that she can't reach Superman by any method but the paper when she uncovers Lex's involvement? Why doesn't she say something under her breath behind the barricade to get a message to him? Why can't she find him after the bombing except by leaving voicemails on his phone? Why doesn't she call for Superman on the helipad before Lex throws her off? And why is she surprised when Superman saves her from that fall? The same goes for Martha. When she's being kidnapped, she doesn't scream for Superman. When she's in the warehouse without a gag, she doesn't scream for Superman. And finally, what about Lex? 
He has to know Superman's specs in order to be confident in his plans, in order for Doomsday to reliably remove Superman from the board. So would he try kidnapping Martha if all it took was a scream to summon Superman? Would he try kidnapping Lois if Superman could be summoned with a shout? Could he possibly plot or scheme if Superman were to hear his every word? Of course not. Like with Lois, like with Martha, Lex knows Superman's limitations. His plans don't make sense unless he does. There are countless implicit and explicit examples and mountains of indirect and direct evidence that Superman's senses are limited and not all-knowing if we work through these conclusions. Over and over in the film, Clark acquires knowledge through the news, exactly as he said he would at the end of Man of Steel. The news complements his powers. His powers do not vitiate the need for news investigation. His relationship to the news proves his limits and demonstrates his respect for privacy. Clark learns about the hearings through Lois. He learns about Kahina through the news. He learns about Keefe through the news. When he investigates Kahina, he doesn't x-ray her place. Instead, he asks questions, and in turn, he learns about the Bat, which again, he researches through the news, not by doing patrols over Gotham. When Clark overhears Bruce's earpiece, he actually follows Bruce through the house. If Clark's powers allow him to perceive without limitation, why bother? He could stand stock still and still hear and see everything Bruce was doing, unless his powers are more limited than some assume. When Clark learns of the factory fire, it's through the news. It's not something he was aware of without the television report. Clark learns about what the talking heads are saying about him through the news. When he meets Adriana, he doesn't x-ray her ID to identify her. He asks questions. When Lois discovers the composition of the wheelchair, she explicitly states one of his limitations, and super Superman asks Lex the questions, what have you done and where is she? If these questions could be swiftly answered with his powers, I don't know that he would ask. If Superman could divine Martha's location, why would Lex plan on being able to keep her from him unless he knew Superman couldn't find her? Several of Batman's traps for Superman rely on surprise. What use are they if Superman is all-knowing? Or is it exactly as Batman says, you were never a god? Okay, I've been on this point way too long. The main point is to start using this reasoning tool in your arsenal of arguments to accept the critic's premise, follow it to its conclusion, and expose the contradiction to reveal the faulty premise. Okay, back to Lex's tools. You're the answer, son. You didn't do it, didn't reach your goal. Your heart is broken, you're an asshole. In the end, you didn't have what it takes. So here's to you and your huge mistakes. You're humiliated, hollowed out, and exhausted. You were in the ring fighting the fight, and you lost it. This isn't your time, this wasn't for you. At least you did everything you could do. You're a loser but a dreamer. You're tired but you're strong. You're going on no evidence. You don't listen to common sense. You went all in and you were wrong. You are such a loser. Good for you. It's something that a lot of people can't do. Trying is hard. That's why people don't do it. Losing is hard. They can't make it through it. But not you. You are such a loser. You are such a loser. Here's to you, cause you deserve a cheering section too. Throw your heart at it, so what if you break it? You know now that you're strong enough to take it. Don't let it break you, don't let them break you. Fake it, keep going till you have a breakthrough. Icarus is bold. That's why it's called mythology. People can't stand genius without an apology. Forget that, forget them. Go get what you want to get. Let them stay home and comment on the internet. 
You're a loser but a dreamer. You're tired but you're strong. You're going on no evidence. You don't listen to common sense. You went all in and you were wrong. You are such a loser. Good for you. It's something that a lot of people can't do. Trying is hard. That's why people don't do it. Losing is hard. They can't make it through it. But not you. You are such a loser. You are such a loser. Here's to you. Cause you deserve a cheering section too. You can only fall that far. Cause you set yourself up so high. Who really cares? But this time it didn't fly. At least you tried. At least you tried. At least you're not that guy watching from the side. Who thinks he's doing better cause he wasn't defeated. When he's just a non-entity who never competed. You're the one who's out there reaching for something greater. And you know. It's better to be a loser than a spectator. And you are such a loser. You are such a loser. So here's to you. You're the answer, son.